be together as one church, so to speak, and to uh, sound forth the word and uh, gather us all together. I want to say on behalf of, again, Sovereign Grace Chapel, I know you've heard me say this before, but we are so, so grateful for your hospitality and your generosity in giving us this opportunity to utilize your church building for our services as well. We feel like we're at home here in a lot of ways because of your kind of warm spirit and hospitality. So thank you uh, again and again for that. All right, with that said, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Um, Before I read a portion in the Gospel of Luke, I want to just say that, uh, you know, there are four Gospels. You might ask the question, why is there four? Why isn't there just one? Well, we, God has his reasons for doing that, and each gospel has its own unique character about it. Some have uh, illustrated it this way in trying to answer the question, how is it that you know, Luke differs from Matthew, and Matthew differs from John, and one looks at it this way, and another one looks at it another way. Maybe you heard the story about the person who brought four blind men to the circus, and they were asking, what is an elephant like? Well, the, uh, the one that brought the four blind men to the circus got permission to be able to bring the four blind people up to the elephant. And each one touched the elephant. One grabbed him by the nose, uh, the tusk, is that what it's called? <laughs> one by the leg, one, one by the tail, one by the side. So therefore, they all had the experience of touching the elephant. And then when the report came, well, what did you think of the elephant? Well, one described him as a wall, Another one described them as a snake or broom. Another one described them as this way and another one that way. So they all experienced the elephant in a different way. And so too, the way the Lord inspired the writers of the Gospels is similar in that sense that he gives them a certain perspective so that we could have the whole picture. And what is included in these books is sufficient for us to rely upon 100%. In more recent days, uh, there's these books that have been coming out and movies and so on, challenging the, the uh, canonicity of the Bible and saying that the, the, the books of the Bible were, were, were selected by uh, preferences and prejudices, and they, they left out other certain books, which we call uh, apocryphal books or pseudepigraphic books, uh, like the Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of Philip and all other kinds of books, They're claiming that those books should have had equal authority, but we know that they did not, and they were not certainly to be included in the canon, and they have some imaginary things that are really ridiculous, plus there's errors in it, and there's all kinds of reasons to to reject it on that basis. But one of the, for instance, examples would be the Gospel of Thomas portrays Jesus as a little child and as a toddler playing with other uh, uh, mates, his age, and uh, they were playing in the, in the clay with the mud and so on, and, and, and Jesus built a, 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 a bird out of clay, and then he just threw it up in the air and it flew away. You know, just ridiculous. The other one was, uh, I think even the same gospel, Thomas has Jesus working with Joseph, the carpenter, his father, as he's known it in ways, as a foster father, really, and Joseph had cut a piece of wood too short. So Jesus says, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. So he took the wood, and he just stretched it to the length that his father desired. Well, those are the kinds of crazy, foolish things you will find in these extra-biblical books. 
that may have some value, but certainly not to the caliber of what the scriptures are. So we believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So this is what we have. This is the final authority. But again, the question, why four gospels? Well, each gospel has a distinction about them that's that has its own character. And I want to talk a little bit about the the, the writer Luke, the inspired writer Luke, and how he portrays the Lord Jesus. And I think it's good for us to understand to, that Luke and Acts, of course, is the same author. So when we're reading the Gospel of Luke, I like to think of the Gospel of the book of Acts as well. In a sense, they're, they're one book, but I like to think of the Gospels as being part one, and the, and the Gospel of Luke, or the Acts of the Apostles, as part two. In one, it's about Jesus, Luke, and the other one, it's about the Holy Spirit. So when we think of the gift of God, we certainly turn it to Gospels, because we have the birth of Christ, his coming into the world, and that's what Luke portrays for us, one of the two that does that. But Luke goes on beyond that and talks about the other gift that came from the gift of Christ which is the Holy Spirit. And that's amazing gift that we have, and we can say we have him, the Spirit, in a tangible way. Uh, unlike Jesus, we don't have him here physically with us, but we do have the Spirit of God personally indwelling us. Now, that's not to say that we don't have Jesus as well in us, but there's a highlight of the Spirit of God's presence indwelling within the life of the believer. So, You've probably noticed this before. This is not going to really be that different from what, from what you've heard or that you've never heard. But as you probably have paid attention to the fact that Matthew and Luke are the only two writers that really, of the four gospel writers, that tells us about the birth of Jesus. And it starts off with genealogies in both of them with, or I should say Luke, at least in the early chapter, gives us the genealogies of Jesus. And in one case, in Matthew, uh, we have Jesus traced through Mary's genealogy. In Luke, we have Jesus' genealogy traced through Joseph. Now, why would that be? Well, Matthew has a certain reason for writing, like Mark does, like Luke does, like John does. Matthew's writing to the Jews. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have over and over again, it is written, it is written, or thus saith the Scripture. We have a total of 60 Old Testament quotations in the Gospel of Matthew, which is more than all of the other Gospels put together. And of all the books of the New Testament, other than, guess what book has more quotations than Matthew? Come on, Chris, I know you know the answer to this one. What are you going to say? What, what other book next to Matthew has the most Old Testament quotations? Maybe illusions, but total. Anybody else want to take a guess? It's the book of Romans. Romans has 64 Old Testament quotes. Matthew has 60 Old Testament quotes. But Matthew has many more than the others. Why? Because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And it was important for them to believe Matthew's account on the basis of what saith the scriptures. 
So Matthew is going to highlight how Jesus came by way of what was written aforetime he was going to accomplish in his lifetime, where he would be born, how he'd be brought down to Egypt. All those are scripture references, but thou Bethlehem Ephrata, from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. My son have I called out of Egypt, Hosea, quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, and on and on. One other thing, too, that Matthew makes reference to that the other doesn't, which is kind of a downside, you could say, about the birth of Jesus, was that Herod, remember, ordered the slaughtering of all male boys two years and under. As I was thinking about it this year, just recently, it reminded me of my own father. My father was born in the country of Albania in 1913. And at, the, at that time, the Ottoman Empire had rule over a lot of those countries, and Albania was one of them uh, that the Turks had uh, rulership over. And there was a curfew at the time that my father was born, and no men were allowed to go out after dark. And it just so happened as my father's mother was bearing him that, that uh, late in the day after dark, his grandmother wanted to come to assist her daughter in giving birth. And she dressed up, and apparently the soldiers that were on duty thought that she was a man, and they accidentally shot her to death, thinking that she was a man who had broken the curfew. But you think of that, what a sour taste that must have left on the birth of a child. That was my father and that would be my great-grandmother who was shot the day of his birth. Well, anyway, we don't want to sour the, the truth about the gloriousness of Jesus' resurrection, but, you know, sometimes Christmas does bring some sorrows with it. Suicide rates go up. There's such an emphasis on joy, peace on earth, and goodwill to man, and all those kinds of things, and people that don't have the Lord as their Savior, they can't really sing those songs, can they? They don't have the joy of the Lord in their heart. They can't be joying and rejoicing over the good news that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. They don't want to come to the manger and adore him. They don't want to think of a necessity of having to be reconciled to God. They don't want to think that they need a second birth, but all those Christmas carols that we sing highlight those precious truths that are so valuable to us. Another thing about the Gospel of Matthew and I could go through Mark and Luke and John and, and just tell you some of the different characteristics. I'll do that real quickly. Mark portrays Jesus as, as, a, as a servant who's there immediately to respond to the call and the needs that are around him. Uh, Luke highlights Jesus as the son of man and John highlights Jesus as the universal savior of mankind. God so loved the world. He was the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Jesus was the light of the world. He was the bread of life, etc. He's spoken of in these broad terms that Jesus wouldn't just die for the people, that is Israel, but for the children of God that were scattered abroad. So John has a very broad perspective of Christ. But Luke, there's some distinctions about Luke that I'm going to bring to your attention hopefully this morning that you will find edifying and glorifying to God. The other thing about Matthew and Luke, which are the two only Gospels that have the record of the birth of Jesus, is the angel that communicates to, in one case, Joseph, and to the other case, Mary. 
the Gospel of Matthew, the angel says to Joseph, Matthew 121, she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What a passage to describe the birth of the Son of God, and his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. What an introduction that was. The angel said that to Joseph because Joseph wanted to put her away. He thought that there was some improprieties in his betrothed wife who deserved to be put away, but he thought differently, and the angel certainly convinced him that that thing which was born of her was not natural, but rather supernatural. So the angel in the Gospel of Luke now, and that's where we're going to read in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 35, <coughs> we'll start at 34, then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I don't know a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, For the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So here it is, the angel is speaking to Mary, whereas in the Gospel of Matthew, the angel is speaking to Joseph. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have Jesus' genealogy that comes, starts off with being an offspring of Abraham, and the other major Old Testament character would be David, because Jesus had to be in the lineage of the Abrahamic line, so that the promise that was made to Abraham, that in thy seed shall all nations be blessed. So they had to be, for the blessing of the nations, the fact that Jesus' genealogy could be traced through the line of Abraham. First thing. The second thing is, if Jesus is going to be portrayed as king in the Gospel of Matthew, as I said, well, who, who does he have to be in the lineage of there? He has to be in the lineage of David. So therefore, David's name is brought up in all of the lineage and progeny of David right down to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's the offspring of Abraham. He's the offspring of David. David was of the tribe of Judah. And the kings that were recognized truly as the kings in Israel were those that were from the city of Jerusalem of the tribe of Judah. And that's the tribe, of course, that Jesus Christ was of. You might find it a little ironic how Jesus could be the king of Israel, and that's what was said on his crucifix, right, above his head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews, yet at the same time, Jesus is a high priest. Now, how could he be both king and priest when he was not in the priestly lineage of Aaron? I, kind of interesting that Zechariah was in a priestly line, and Elizabeth was married to a priest, but Mary, who was a cousin, we don't know how close that cousinship was between Mary and Elizabeth. For, my, for some reason, I always used to assume that they were first cousins. Have you thought that? I don't know where I got that from, but it's not really scriptural. It just simply says relative. So you could have a relative from another tribe, and that must have been the case between Elizabeth and Mary. So, and it kind of explains, too, why when Jesus was baptized by John, it, it seems to give the impression that this was the first time that John had seen Jesus. 
Well, they were from different parts of the land of Israel, and because they would have been possibly distant relatives, it's likely, therefore, that their children would not have intersected with one another, therefore, because they're only six months apart, right, between one another. If I have my dates right, I think that's what it is. So they were very close in age, and yet John doesn't seem to know who he is until he has the identity of Jesus marked out when the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus and abides on him, and then he says, yes, that's the one who I have come to say, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his path straight. This is the Lord that I am making the path straight up. Okay, let's get to Luke now. So Luke has this reference to Mary is said of her that the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. This is how she conceived. There was no male intervention here. There was no seed of Adams that was engaged in the conception of Jesus. You could say that the seed was the Holy Spirit that caused the womb of Mary to conceive. It was a real conception in the womb. It was a supernatural conception, but it was a real conception. There was a biological union between Mary and the offspring, Jesus, in the flesh. You know, the early church had to wrestle with the doctrine of how could God be born of a woman? They used the Greek word theotokos, which means, in reference to Mary, that she was a God-bearer. In a way, that's very true. In a way, depending on the nuance, it could be very misleading. Because if Mary's bearing God, what does that say about her? Well, the Roman Catholic Church wants to take that further and say, well, she had to be sinless herself. Therefore, she had to be immaculately conceived to be able to bring forth a child that would be immaculate himself and without sin. Well, that's unbiblical. That's foreign to the Scriptures. Mary had to say, my soul doth rejoice in God my Savior. And she had to present an offering for her purification in the Gospel of Luke as well. So there's no doubt that, that they went beyond Scripture, but it's okay to understand Mary as being a God-bearing person. That's what she was. Selected of God. God's favor was upon her, and all generations should call her blessed forever. So as Protestants, we don't necessarily, we don't have to back off from our praises. We, we praise the Lord for Paul and for Peter and all of these other spiritual celebrities, so to speak. And Mary seems to be the bottom of the ladder, but well, not so. She was blessed above woman in all generations, including us, should consider her blessed to be able to be one who would bear God in her body. And as these things are taking place, over the birth of Jesus, some amazing, amazing thing goes on with Zacharias, who has this revelation, again, the Lord speaking to him, and uh, about John the Baptist's birth, and then Elizabeth going, uh, uh, hearing uh, the voice of, of Mary when Mary approaches Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit, in John. John was uh, not conceived like Jesus with the Holy Spirit, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Figure that one out. But when John, the babe, heard the voice of the mother of his Lord, he leaped in the womb of his mother, not over Mary, but over the, bear, the one Mary was bearing. And that's what we should be like when we hear about Jesus. Anything about him, singing these 
glorious song. It should cause our hearts to leap. We have the Holy Spirit of God within us, and the Holy Spirit testifies to us about Jesus. So he should be our supreme meditation. He should be the object of our affections. He's the one that wins our heart. We have stars that a, a star appears. We have wise men from the east coming. We have all this drama taking place. And then we have Jesus is circumcised at, at the age of eight days old. We have different highlights of Jesus' life. We have his conception, we have circumcision, his baptism, his crucifixion, his glorification. And here we have in the Gospel of Luke in the beginning, he's circumcised like any Jew should be. Male Jew would be circumcised at the age of eight days old. And then days later, Mary, for her own purification, had to again go to the temple because she could not enter into it because of... Uh, her impurities, bearing a child, either a male or a female, there had to be an X amount of days before she would be able to, to go into the temple. So when she goes, it says at that time, the Spirit led Simeon to come into the temple. And what does he do? He sees Jesus. And it says he takes him up. Now this is just a babe that would be probably less than about two months old. So definitely an infant stage. Simeon picks up this child. It appears that Simeon was an older man, very old. He picks up the child and he says, Now mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Let now thy servant depart in peace. That was the Holy Spirit working in Simeon to recognize that Jesus was his Savior. Even in his infancy, there is the Savior of the world. Mine eyes have seen God's salvation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now he says, Lord, let your, per let your servant, me, be dismissed, be departed. To what? Like Stephen, when he was dying. Again, this is Luke, the gospel of the book of Acts, you could say, of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, at his death, when he was about to die, he lifts up his eyes to heaven. He sees Jesus, and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. We get, again, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is being crucified next to two thieves. They both have railed on him. And yet one of them, at the 11th hour, turns to the Lord Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Luke is highlighting the truth of the Savior, of salvation. Jesus can say, you'll be with me in paradise. And if you were that thief dying next to him, what kind of confidence would you have of where you're going? When you're on your deathbed, are you going to have that peace and assurance that where I am, there you shall be also? Today you'll be not in paradise, but with me. That's what makes paradise paradise. It's him, not, not the scenery, whatever you may imagine or whatever kind of uh, conclusions you may draw from the pictures the Bible gives of what heaven is like. The greatest and most significant part about being in heaven is to be with the Savior to be with the one that loved you and gave himself for you. The one who's going to forever teach us his graces through eternity. 
we'll never plumb the depths of his love for us here in this world. We all have to hang our heads and say, boy, his love is so great, I can't hardly grasp the, just the elementary things about it. But in heaven, we're going to have an eternal class, and we're going to see forever the Lamb of God who was crucified for us, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And those mocks are going to remain for us to forever be grateful for the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. So Luke is one who talks a lot about the afterlife. In Luke, we have Jesus describing about the two men that died. One died and went to what? carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The other one died and opened up his eyes, being in torments in hell. Who could tell us something like that? It has to be the one who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10. It's Jesus that could talk about the afterlife and its truths. In Luke, again, chapter 1, he talks about Judas Iscariot, how, that he, how he died. As you know, he hung himself. Apparently, the rope broke. He crashed down, and his gut spilt out. But it said he died, and it says, and he went to his own place, his own place. Again, there's the afterlife emphasis that Luke brings out. Simeon, let your servant depart in peace. The thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Judas Iscariot, the rich man in Lazarus, all that's Luke's writings. Again, Luke's given an inspiration from God to highlight certain things that Matthew is not highlighted to give or or John's not highlighted to give. So we need all of these gospel accounts. So the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Some have assumed that that means that Jesus became the Son of God at conception or at birth. John MacArthur held that for a lot of years himself, uh, believing that Jesus wasn't the Son until he was born into the world. He later said, no, he was wrong on that particular point. I'm glad he did because I think it's significant because the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He was Son before he was the Father. The Father sent the Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Jesus says that I have come to exegete my Father. I've come to tell about my Father. How could he, if he wasn't the Son, be able to talk about the fatherhood of God? He had to be son prior to his birth in the world. You could say the son of God became the son of man as well as maintaining his son of Godship as well. He had to enter into the pale of humankind and therefore take on our humanity so he could identify with us to be able for us who love him and believe on him to have a merciful and faithful high priest who's able to succor us, who's able to aid us, who's able to sympathize with us with all the needs that we have. He couldn't have done that if he wasn't a man. He had to acclimate himself. The Bible says about Jesus in Hebrews 5 that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It says that he grew in wisdom and in grace before God and man. That's amazing. That's the lowliness, the condescension of the Lord Jesus, that in becoming a baby, he grew into being a toddler, 
to an adolescent, to a teenager, to a young adult, to an adult, and all through that period of time, he was learning. Luke mentions Jesus was circumcised at eight days of age, that Jesus was baptized at what age? Luke tells you about the age of 30, which interestingly is, is the age when, when a priest, an Aaronic priest, no, not an Aaronic priest, but a Levitical priest, would begin their priesthood officially. Interesting. And when the priest began his uh, function as a priest, he had to be anointed, right? He had to be anointed, first with blood on his toe, his thumb, and what was the other one? There's three. His, his right toe, his right thumb, help me out on that one. There's a third one. Huh? Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Glad you came today. Um, so, uh, and then after the blood, they had to be anointing the same place. The foot, the hand, and the ear. The anointing of the oil. Well, Jesus, when he was baptized, it says, and again, this is Luke, he was anointed with power and with the Holy Ghost. And he went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Luke is the Holy Spirit gospel writer. It's in Luke that there's so much about so much on this. I, I could go on for hours, I think, talking about the gospel of Luke. I love the gospel of Luke. Luke is so interesting, and he's so different than all the other gospels. I mean, we have the, the Good Samaritan, we have Zacchaeus, we have uh, Je- um, yeah, Jericho, uh, Zacche- uh, the Good Samaritan. We have uh, the, the the ten lepers. We have um, Martha and Mary referenced, uh, and on and on. There's a whole bunch of examples. I think there's about 11 of them that I have written down that the gospel, other Gospels don't make reference to. But one thing that Luke makes lots of reference to is the Holy Spirit. When he says about, in the, I believe it's in chapter 11, he says to pray for the Holy Spirit. Which one of you that has a son who asks you for a piece of bread, are you going to give him a stone? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. This is Luke. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon thee. The power of the highest is going to overshadow thee. Right off the bat, Luke is talking about the influence of the Spirit. Zechariah prophesied in the Spirit. John the Baptist has the Spirit from his mother's womb. Elizabeth speaks in the Spirit. Simeon comes into the temple by the Spirit. And then Jesus goes into the synagogue, has a Scroll handed to him of the book of Isaiah. He opens up the book as if he needed to open it up, but he's opening it up, probably unraveling the scroll. Probably the book of Isaiah might have had 10 different scrolls because one scroll could not be long enough to contain 66 chapters. But it says he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord God is upon. It's not in any of the other gospels, right? It's not in John, it's not in Mark, it's not in Matthew. It's in Luke, the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So now Luke ends the gospel of Luke with what? If you turn to the 24th chapter, I just want to read this portion with you. It says, well, we should start at verse 46. 
Then he opened their understanding, that's 45, and that they might understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Now, listen up here. And behold, I, this is Jesus, send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. What is Luke referring to here about what Jesus is talking about? He's saying, wait in Jerusalem. Tarry there until you are empowered by the Holy Spirit that will come upon you. And that's what we get in uh, Acts chapter 1. The Holy Spirit shall come upon me and the power. It, it just like, almost like the way it came upon Mary in, in a way. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. How is that possible that you be witnesses? Because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. What gives us boldness to talk about Jesus? It's the Spirit of God who wants us to testify about Christ to others. That's what he prompts in us to do. So in the book of Acts, you could say, here's now the gift. You could say the, I don't want to say a secondary gift, but I want to say the baton is being passed. The Father sends the Son into the world. That's the Gospels. And now Acts, the Spirit sends the Son, a Spirit rather, into the world to spread the Gospel. That's another gift. That's the extended gift. That's the double gift. That's the package deal. Jesus comes into the world, and he now is saying, I'm going away, but don't worry about it. Oh, please, don't leave me. Mary wants to embrace him. Don't cleave to me now. Don't touch me, because I have not yet ascended to my Father and your Father, to, your, to my God and your God. But I'm going to send you another comforter, another comforter. Jesus was a comforter while he was on earth. They thought they were going to lose their comforter. But Jesus says, hang on, wait 50 days on Pentecost. The Spirit's going to come, it's going to baptize you, and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And having received the Holy Spirit now, we have a personal communion with God unlike any other age, any other era. Abraham rejoiced to, would rejoice to see our day and to hear the things that we hear and see the things that we see. We are a privileged generation, the post-cross resurrection people of God. We are blessed beyond measure. That's what it means when it says he giveth his spirit without measure. We're the ones that are receiving the spirit without measure from the Lord so that we can be witnesses unto him. So the gift doesn't stop at the cradle, doesn't stop at the cross. The gift goes on to the, and will be highlighted at the second coming, but in the meantime, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. We don't think of that too often, do we? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, but the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to us is the Holy Spirit. So we tarried, they tarried at Jerusalem, they were endued with the Spirit, and I could go on and on in the book of Acts of how the Spirit of God was working in the lives of the people of God as they were spreading the good news that Jesus Christ was crucified. Now, they don't refer to the birth. I think, I don't want to say that we make more of the birth than which should be made of. No, that, that wouldn't be right to say something like that. 
But the, the Bible obviously highlights the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. That's the gospel. He couldn't do any of the, those things unless he was first born into the world. He had to take on a, a, a body that was capable of dying. So there was nothing supernatural about his flesh. I mean, if he, if he hit a, na a nail and missed it with a hammer and he hit his thumb, it was going to sp sp uh, swell and it would turn purple, so to speak. He was natural body-wise, absolutely, because of his full identity with mankind. But in that full identity, the identity particularly that's most important is that he had the capacity to die. Capacity to die. And getting back to the thought about Jesus as being a great high priest, because of his humanity, he's able to identify with us. He knows what you're going through. And if you're going through a trial or temptation, he's there for you. He's there to aid you, to suckle you, to draw you to himself, to come alongside of you and to minister to you. I like to think of the Lord Jesus when he uh, came by, uh, it was in a crowd, and that woman who had that stench of blood, that internal hemorrhage, that she went to the doctor for years, she couldn't get it healed, she spent all the money on it, and yet Jesus is coming by, and she reaches out, and just with a touch to the hem of the garment, suddenly virtue comes out of Christ's power, and she's instantly healed. Well, I, I like to, and Jesus said, who touched me? He knew who touched her. He's just trying to draw her out. Who touched me? She finally said, here I am, I touched you. Yeah, you're the one, you're right. Well, Jesus too is touchable. With all the feelings of our infirmities, it tells us in Hebrews 4.15, that's the kind of merciful and faithful high priest that we have. So I hope this helps you understand the picture of, of the birth of Christ, that it's much bigger than just him in a manger. This is just setting the stage for what's going to come down the line. And if we don't see the end from the beginning in the beginning to the end, then we're missing the whole message of really what we could say Christmas should be about. It's more than just the, the manger. It's about the man, Christ Jesus, who's seated now at the right hand of God, having accomplished redemption for us at Calvary's cross, raising from the dead, ascended into heaven, given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Merry Christmas. Let's close in prayer. Yeah. Father, thank you for sending your Son into the world. Father, we don't deserve him. Never did deserve him. There was nothing in us that would have drawn our attention to him or drawn you into giving us attention. But we thank you, Lord, that your love was great and mercy free. We praise you, Lord, for your kindness towards us in giving the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world, to become our Savior. Yes, he's a Savior of those who especially who believe. And we thank you that we can look in the manger and we can see the one who was going to become a man who was going to be one who would be hung on a cross, who would be humiliated, who would be spit upon, who would be bruised, who would be uh, beaten, who would be a substitute for us on the cross and bearing our sins in his body on the tree. Thank you, O oh God, for raising him from the dead and giving him glory. And that, Lord, now we can go from the, from the manger. We can go to the place 
of the throne where he is right now, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the king of the kingdom of his people here in this bleak and dark world. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to be bearers of the light. As Paul says, bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. So, Lord, thank you once again for the season of the year when we've been able to take again another glance uh, at, at, the, at the birth of our Lord Jesus and to rejoice about this amazing truth, how you love the world, how you sent your son, how you gave him to be not a babe merely, but to become a man and to be a savior and to save us from our sins and to gift us, Lord, with a Holy Spirit that comes through the finished work of the Lord Jesus and his promise that as he received the Spirit, so he gives to us his people so that we can spread what he spread, the gospel, and say that we have now the ability with the divine power working in us to tell people that their sins can be forgiven, that they can be set free from their prisonness, that they can be uh, enlightened, that they can be happy and joyful and their sins can be gone and paid in full. So, Lord, we just give you praise and glory and honor. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to carry uh, these truths with us throughout the days of our life and that we may rejoice more and more about our great and glorious Savior, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we give you praise. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>